into tomorrow, then scattered thunderstorms in the afternoon. Thursday night, isolated thunderstorms, then isolated showers overnight. 20% chance, though, low of 59. Stay tuned right now for the talk shop on WJFF 90.5 FM. Don't miss WJFF Summer Yard Sale this Saturday at our new facility on Route 52 in Liberty. We have china and glassware, furniture and fixtures, tools, trinkets, and more. The sale goes from 10 to 2 at 2758 Route 52. Come and get some really neat stuff and support WJFF at the same time. It's our Summer Yard Sale this Saturday at 10 in Liberty. I'm Jan Goodwin, your host tonight for Talk Shop on NPR's Radio Catskill, WJFF 90.5 FM. This evening, we're focusing on organ transplants, how your chances of getting one locally are not so great, why that is, and what can be done to improve that. Not so long ago, when I was driving through Honesdale in PA, I saw a billboard that read, Bobby, age 10, in Hawley, needs a kidney. I was shocked that in the world's richest country, a family had to resort to a billboard to get their young son the kidney he so desperately needed. At that time, I didn't know that 20 critically ill children and adults die every year in the U.S. while waiting for an organ transplant. Organ transplants have saved the lives of more than 700,000 people in this country. But if you're living in PA or New York, the region this uh, radio station covers, your chances are particularly bad for receiving a transplant before you become too ill to undergo the surgery or before the delay kills you. Today, New York State has the third lowest rate of organ donor registration and the third highest need in the country. In fact, in New York, only 18% of adults are enrolled as donors, far less than the national average of 43%. This in part explains why every year far too many New York residents who are on the organ donation waiting list die because of a statewide organ shortage. The situation is so bad that in New York State, the lack of available transplant organs is considered a public health crisis. In Pennsylvania, the situation is also grim. In 1994, PA created the best practices for organ and tissue donation, which were adopted nationally. But 24 years later, we're now at the bottom of the pack nationwide. Only 2,078 transplants were performed in PA last year due to a lack of organ donations. And since then, thousands more critically ill patients have joined the list needing one. This is why U.S. Representative Matt Cartwright, a Democrat for PA, who is with us tonight, has just introduced a bipartisan bill called the Organ Donor Clarification Act, which he hopes will increase organ donation nationwide and reverse the thousands of preventable deaths every year. Congressman, thank you for joining TalkShop to discuss this issue. Oh, it's nice to be with you, Jan. How are you? Good, thank you. I understand that you had a beloved aunt who died waiting for an organ transplant Briefly, what happened, and then we'll get into the bill. I, I did. In fact, she was in New York State uh, and uh, and lived part part of the of her year up in uh, in Vermont. And um, oh, she had uh, uh, she had a, a, an illness process that ended up costing her her kidneys. And you know that uh, things like sepsis or septic shock, uh, the first organ that that suffers is the kidney, and um, that's what happened to her, and she lost her kidneys, and she was on dialysis. And, um, you know, people that are on dialysis, um, it's a hard life. Uh, it's, uh, they're so restricted. Uh, they have to plan their entire lives around what their dialysis schedule allows. Uh, and then uh, uh, they feel uh, lousy. Uh, when it comes time for them to be due for their next dialysis treatment. And um, it, it's not much of a life. And, and uh, uh, I remember people, when, when my aunt passed away, I remember family members saying, well, uh, it's kind of a blessing. I mean, that's how bad it is. Uh, death is a blessing uh, compared to life on dialysis for wow. some people. And was she actually waiting? Was she on the donor on the donation list? I, uh, I think she was. 
but she had a lot of other um, compromises to her health, Jan. What really stuck out for me was how, le- how lousy her, her quality of life was while she was on dialysis. Right. Now, your legislation would remove existing barriers that donors face under the current law and allow for a pilot program to test the effectiveness of non-cash incentives to increase the supply of organs for transplantation. How would this work exactly? Right. Um, uh, my bill does two things. Uh, number one, it clarifies existing law. Now, uh, it is the uh, uh, the National uh, uh, Organ Transplant Act of 1984 that controls this entire discussion. And now, this is a law that prohibits buying or selling organs for, quote, valuable consideration, unquote. And, and the problem is it leads to confusion about what constitutes valuable consideration. Uh, in fact, uh, that prohibition... Uh, has scared away people from uh, reimbursing living organ donors for things like medical expenses and lost wages. Uh, Both of these are legal under the National Organ Transplant Act, NOTA, NOTA. Both are legal under NOTA, but uh, the law's lack of clarity um, and its criminal penalties have created uncertainty and and, confusion. reticence and prevented reimbursement in many cases. You know, uh, uh, NOTA uh, instituted a uh, uh, up to five-year prison term and and, uh, uh, and or a $50,000 penalty uh, so that the, the people involved in, in the entire uh, uh, provider uh, uh, arena uh, have been uh, made afraid uh, of running afoul of the law so that they're, they're probably uh, uh, steering way too clear of the line. And that ends up hurting the supply of organs, and that's what you started out talking about. So basically then, I think, uh, doesn't your bill also include the fact that they can be reimbursed for time taken off, expenses involved with donating an organ, things of that nature? Absolutely. Uh, We do two things. Number one, we clarify what valuable consideration is. So the statute is very clear, and it provides a bright line. So the providers are not in fear of of criminal jeopardy. Um, But it also allows for pilot programs. And let me tell you why we did that. Uh, The situation is dire. The statistics are awful. Uh, I think you mentioned 20 people die in this country every day waiting for a viable organ. You know, about 13 of those 20 are people waiting for a kidney. Um, And, in fact, um, as of June 2018, Jan, 115,000 people in America await an organ transplant, and fully 95,000 of them are are waiting for a kidney. Uh, And... uh, and here's why it, it makes such a difference. Uh, living uh, on dialysis is awful, but it's, it's in addition to that, you know, in addition to the human cost, there is the financial cost. Uh, over 7% of the Medicare budget, and we're talking about the end-stage renal disease program, over 7% of the Medicare budget goes toward dialysis. We're talking about the average annual Medicare spending for a, for one dialysis patient is eighty seven thousand dollars. Wow! So as a result of this, if we were able to figure this out, if we were able to really sharpen our pencils and get down and figure out what's the root of the problem and and get more people to donate, and so that you know instead of the the paltry uh, what did you say two thousand. Uh, uh, transplants a, yeah. a year. If we had the proper number of transplants happening in a year, experts project that eliminating the waiting list would save taxpayers over $5.5 billion a year in medical costs and, all, and, and billions of dollars more in savings to other social programs. Remember, when somebody's on dialysis, they're not working, Jan, so they're drawing on other federal social programs like Social Security Disability. Uh, So we're talking about if you add up all of the costs, the dollar costs per year, it's somewhere between 
6 and $10 billion a year uh, because of the lack of supply of organs for transplantation. Now, to answer your question, the other part of the bill is to allow scientists to do pilot programs uh, to try uh, other ways of uh, offering uh, non-transferable uh, consideration that do not run afoul of this law. So, for example, uh, uh, well, we're, we're proposing uh, things like allowing scientists under strict guidelines through a government-run program, and, of course, only after approval by an ethical review board and the Department of Health and Human Services, to start limited government-run pilot programs uh, to test the effects of non-cash incentives on organ donation. And we're not, we don't specify what kind of non-cash incentives uh, could be used, but I think the key is that they're non-transferable. Cash is transferable, but you want a non-transferable incentive. Uh, and it could be a, a number of different things. It could be things like uh, assistance with tuition or knocking money off of your, uh, your student debt burden or other things like that that cannot be transferred because it's the transferability of, of something like cash that, of course, you worry would lead to abuses. Right. And your, the amount of money that you're talking about saving would, would seem to suggest that this bill would be a shoe-in. Um, I do know that the kidney waiting list in major cities, for example, can be as long as 10 years, which is actually longer than a patient can survive on dialysis. But I have another question for you. Would this also help? In a growing number of European countries, it's now assumed that everyone wants to be a donor. This is called presumed consent. So unless they actively back out by stating no on their driving licenses, everyone is presumed to, to want to be a donor. In this country, of course, it's the reverse. When you actually go to get your driving license, as you know, you're asked to be an organ donor. Would you like to be an organ donor? Many people don't respond. Do you think this could be improved to sort of copy the European model? Well, people who have charming accents like yours all <laughs> often want us to copy European <laughs> models. I know that, Jan. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, the answer is, of course, that's something that we could look into. An opt-out system. I mean, right now, for example, in Pennsylvania, when you go for a driver's license, they ask you to uh, check a box if you want to be an organ donor. Exactly. And you, exactly. Have, you have to check that box affirmatively or else you are presumed not to want to be an organ donor. And, uh, and that's exactly what you're talking about. If we were to uh, have a system where you have, you have to opt out affirmatively, uh, then so many other people would be listed as, as organ donors. And I think that's, uh, that would be something absolutely worth testing. But I don't think we ought to take anything off the table, Jan. No, uh, not is, at uh, all. This is a health emergency in this country. Uh, it's, it's not just the expense, it's the human cost that I think about. Uh, and and uh, uh, I don't think anything ought to be off the table. And, and uh, it, what, what we're doing right now is not working, and people are dying waiting for organ transplants. And, of course, that, right. I, if we had a better system in, pl in place, uh, they would get those organs. Right. And also, of course, because people are living longer in this country because of increasing obesity, higher blood pressure, the number of people in America with kidney failure has increased by 20 percent since the year 2000, which is a pretty staggering sum. Um, Congressman, I really thank you for your time, and we hope your bill will become law. Let's well, I hope so, too, and I'm proud to have received endorsements of my bill from the American Medical Association, the American Transplant Foundation, the Foundation for Kidney Transplant Research, Donor to Donor, and, and other organizations. So we'll continue to push it. And we will talk again about this. Let's take a station break. You're, talking, you're listening to Talk Shop, NPR Radio, Catskill, WJFF 90.5 FM. I'm your host, Jan Goodwin.
comes from you and from Van Gorder's Furniture with showrooms in Honesdale, Lake Wom, Pack, and Milford, Pennsylvania. VanGorders.com. And from Milkweed, Unexpected Wonders for the Inspired Home and the Curious Kid at Maud Alley, 1019 Main Street in Honesdale. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. Welcome back. Talk Shop this evening is focusing on organ transplants, how Americans die every day waiting for one. Our next guest is Janine Fortuna, whose only child, Bobby, developed a potentially fatal kidney disease at age three. Uh, Janine, can you tell us what exactly happened? Um, okay, so when he was about three years old, my, um, my son's preschool teachers, and we had noticed he had this unquenchable thirst and he urinated way more than any kids in the class. So um, we had taken him for a few tests for, with pediatricians, and they urine tested him for diabetes and said that he would probably grow out of it or he was doing it for attention. So, um, and we found out years later that that was not the case. So it, it seems that most people and apparently some doctors are not aware that common childhood infections can cause kidney damage and failure? Yes. From what I understand, even something, uh, something that you would consider minor as strep throat can cause kidney damage. Really? In some children. Wow. Now, what were your son's other symptoms? You mentioned he never got to sleep a full night. Oh, he never slept. He would get up two or three times a night to urinate. Um, he, that was in, at the nighttime, and then he was exhausted during the day. He would talk to us and fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. He would, he would urinate volumes of basically clear urine because of his failing kidneys, which at that point we were unaware of when he was so young. Now, he was finally diagnosed after six years. What did the doctors tell you? Um, he started with a New Year's Day. He started vomiting for six weeks straight, and he would, from time to time, between the ages of six and eight, he, I mean three and eight, he would get these vomiting episodes that I was always told were just a virus and they would pass. Um, so this one held on for six weeks. Um, and when we finally got uh, sent to a gastroenterologist, and he did blood work, um, we were told that he was already at the end of stage 3 kidney failure at the age of 8. And what was the actual diagnosis? What did the doctors tell you he had? He was diagnosed with a very rare kidney disorder, um, genetic. He, it's called nephronopsis. He's one in 990,000 in the United States that has this genetic kidney disorder. So technically, his kidneys were genetically broken? Technically, yes. His kidneys were not made properly on a genetic level. Ah, I understand. So at what stage of kidney failure would he have to go on dialysis? Um, once you hit stage 5 and you get under, um, they call it GFR, once you get under 20, it depends on the center. Some centers make weight for the children to fully fail before they um, start to look for a donor, and some they let them, they wait until you get to a GFR of 20, and they start to look for a donor and possibly put you on to put the child or anyone on to dialysis. Now, the congressman said that dialysis was very hard. How difficult is, is it for a child? What does it involve? For a child, um, from what I understand, it depends on the dialysis, and most children are put on peritoneal dialysis, which they're given a tube into their bellies, and um, the parents at night are trained to hook up this machine that puts a fluid into their bellies that removes all of the toxins that normally your kidneys would remove. So the child is hooked up every single night for sometimes between 10 and 12 hours a night, but it must be every single night in order to remove the toxins out of their bodies. And that would be something you as his mother would have to do at home? Yes. Is that yes. so they would teach you how to do that? 
Yes, you would go. You would go to the hospital, um, your treating hospital, and there's a class, and you are taught how to hook up the machine, how to take care of alarms if there's problems with the machine, um, bleeding into the machine. There, there are a whole host of complications it sounds, that could happen. It sounds very scary. It's very scary. And you were already giving him medications, I believe, and growth hormone shots and hemoglobin. Yes. Why was, he getting, why was he getting growth hormones? Okay, so due to the kidney disease, kidneys basically, um, from what I understand, control almost every function of the body. So um, most children with kidney disease don't grow. So he was started on growth hormones. There's also an anemia that comes from it. So I was also giving him um, a supplement, sort of like an iron supplement, to increase his energy level and to increase the oxygen that would circulate through his body. Now, would he, had he been diagnosed much earlier, could his condition have been controlled by medication? Um, he eventually would have needed a kidney transplant either way, but had he been caught around stage one or two, they may have been able to prolong it with medication, prolong a kidney transplant, yes. So he was eight when you were told he needed a kidney transplant? Yes, he was eight. And then what did you and your husband have to do next? So we, um, so we had to go to monthly appointments to keep track of him, his growth, his weight, his um, basically every function. He was having difficulty concentrating. He had um, countless amounts of drugs that were every day. Every month when we went were changed up and down depending on his blood work. Um, and we just had to wait it, wait it out until he was um, stage 5 failure so they would start to then look for a donor. And at what stage were, did, he register, did you register him at a transplant center? He was stage, um, just beginning stage 5. He was um, registered on the deceased donor list February of 2017. Oh, so just last year? Yes. <laughs> And there are how many transplant centers in America? 200, I believe, which is... And your nearest and, and, one was where? Um, my nearest transplant center is three hours away in Philadelphia. There was one in Danville, but from what I understand, they mm -hmm. we started there with Geisinger Danville, and they have since um, stopped their program for kidneys and kidney transplants for children. Um, I had received a letter from his original doctor. So we are in Philadelphia, which is about a three- to five-hour drive, depending on traffic. Each way. Each way, Wow. Yes. Now, when did you guys decide to use social media to get your son a kidney? So we knew that my husband and I were not candidates due to our previous medical conditions. So um, we knew that we would need an outside donor from the family, um, there were other issues with other relatives, closer relatives. Um, the other cousins in the family were too young, so we knew we needed to have someone that was not related to us, and that's almost like finding a needle in a haystack. So you basically sent out hundreds of emails to relatives, I teachers. I started Facebook page, um, and from the Facebook page, someone very nicely offered to do the electronic billboards and it just sort of snowballed at that point and people would message me through my Facebook page for Bobby and I would send out the applications that the hospital gave me to screen people. Did you have any potential donors turn up? We had, um, I know in about a year, I had about eight that tested a few got very close, um, and then the transplant team sort of decided that they were not good enough for a child. So you must have been scared to death that you would not find a match, that your son could die before he got a new kidney? I was, from the day I heard the diagnosis, I was devastated. Um, he's my only child. It took us eight years to conceive him. And then to find this out was shocking. Like I said, I was devastated. Um, but I knew I had to fight for him. And the only way I could fight, him, fight for him the best was to find him the best, closest donor. 
and our goal was to find a living donor before he would have to go on dialysis. Were you told how long it could take for him to get one? Um, I was told it depended on the blood type, but his was rare because he's O positive and he could only receive an O blood donor. So he was um, he was going to be a difficult match because we did not have close relatives, siblings, which are usually the closest match to anyone. Um, we don't have any siblings for him. So we knew it was going to take a long time. I was told three to five years, usually. And in fact, I understand that in some parts of the country it can take up to 10, depending on where oh, you yes. live. Yes. Um, the way the policy works is if it's a child, the children usually go to the top of the list, the, the, the waiting list, and as they get, it's usually the sickest child as the organs come available that the sickest children get the first offer on organs. Okay, we're going to go to a station break again. Okay. You're, you're listening to Talk Shop, NPR Radio, Catskill, WJFF, 90.5 FM. I'm Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Join me on the next Talk Shop for Let's Talk Vets, news and information of interest to our veteran and active service communities. This month, we'll talk to John Galena, co-founder of Purple Heart Homes. This North Carolina-based nonprofit specializes in retrofitting existing or building new homes for disabled vets from all wars. That's Let's Talk Vets, September 5th, 7 p.m. on WJFF. Welcome back. Talk Shop this evening is talking about organ transplants, how Americans die every day waiting for one. We're talking to Janine Fortuna, who was told her only child, Bobby, required an organ transplant to save his life. Janine, was Bobby's health failing as you waited for a donor? Was it getting worse? Oh, yes. Bobby, Bobby would, um, he was vomiting almost daily. He would have terrible, terrible headaches daily, um, excruciating headaches. Um, he had difficulty sleeping, or he would fall asleep in class. He was, he was definitely not himself. You could see it in his face. His eyes were black. He was, his levels, all of his blood levels were off completely. His phosphorus was too high. He had to be on a special diet to try to control his phosphorus because his kidneys couldn't filter it anymore. What sort of diet was he on? It had to be low phosphorus. Um, he was okay with salt. It depends on the child and the disease as to how they control diet. But with Bobby, his was mostly low phosphorus. And we had to eliminate red meat, which seemed to be the one thing that seemed to be the most cause of his vomiting. Um, otherwise, he was just, he, nothing tasted good because they get they call it urea breath it's it's almost like the toxins build up in your mouth you can smell it on their breath and then and nothing tastes good so he's you know he was a picky child to begin with and of course now he becomes this terrible taste in his mouth so he had a very hard time eating and what about schooling i mean from everything you're saying it sounds like it would be impossible to go to school he, yes, he missed a lot of school. Um, we, you, what they do is they give you, it's called a 504 plan, so the child is allowed to be tutored at home, so he's allowed to have a lot of absences, which is what he did. He had, there were weeks he couldn't go to school because he would be vomiting or he would have such a headache. He would try his best to get to school, and I would get a phone call a couple of hours later that he was vomiting or had such a terrible headache, he would, I would have to go pick him up. And the teachers would come twice a week um, to tutor him at our, ho at our home after they spent their day at school. 
Wow. Now, all this time you were also taking him to and from the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia? Yes. Now, how often would you have to stay there? What about hotels, parking? What sort of things were happening? Um, We would stay, depending on when our appointments were, if they were early in the morning, I would stay overnight. Um, Hotels were probably... Three hundred, three up to three hundred dollars a night to stay close to the hotel. Um, if they were afternoon appointments, I could drive in and just go that day. Some days, though, he would see three and four specialists, so it was it would be a very very long day. It was it, it's it's quite stressful to have to to know that you're so far away from the one hospital that can treat you know this catastrophic illness that he had. Now, also, I believe in your support group, you learned that people can go bankrupt from these kind of expenses. Oh, yes. I know people who, after their children were transplanted, it cost them $15,000 just for the six weeks of follow-ups. Um, you have, once transplant, I mean, you are, some people are five, six, ten hours away from their treating hospital, their closest treating hospital. Wow. Um from what I understand, children's renal failure is a very specialized medicine, so there's very few hospitals, even children's hospitals, that treat it. Um, so, yes, I've, I've spoken to parents who have lost their houses over their expenses, the co-pays, the they've medications. L- they've lost their houses? Yes. Wow. Now. Yeah. You also, did you also know at the time that Pennsylvania, where you live, is now third from the bottom nationwide in getting donor transplants? I Yes, I did. I did a lot of research um, with regard to his disease and transplant, and yes. It was. I mean, could you have gone outside your geographic area, something, something known as transplant tourism, to a location no, where... No, I couldn't. We couldn't because Bobby was covered by the state, so I can only stayed within Pennsylvania. Um, the closest other transplant hospital was UPMC in Pittsburgh, which is, I believe, a six-hour drive in one direction. So our choices were slim as to where I could go um, because had I gone out of state, he would not have been fully covered. Insurance would not cover anything outside of Pennsylvania. Right, and I understand that I know liver transplants out of pocket, for example, can cost over $600,000 just for the surgery. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea how much your son's kidney transplant would have cost if you'd gone to, say, another state? Um, I'm sure it's probably that and some. Uh, it, he was in the hospital for a week um, and then six weeks of twice-a-week follow-up. I'm, I'm imagining, I'm sure, it's somewhere in the millions of what the cost is for a transplant out of state, in state. <laughs> yeah. Now, when did, you, when did you finally learn that there was a kidney for Bobby? Um, June 14th, I got a phone call. and um, That was June 14th this year? June 14th of this year, I got the call, and um, quite exciting and scary all at the same time. It's the thing you wish for, but you know your child has to have a six-hour surgery. Anything can happen between infection, and um, I've heard of other stories where they've done the surgery and it doesn't work, so now your child is automatically put onto dialysis because now the kidneys don't work. So a lot of risks for hoping to save your child's life. Do you remember what you were doing at the time you got that call? Yes, we were in school volunteering for his fourth-grade teacher. Um, We were selling T-shirts for, she was collecting money for a local charity that provides for Ronald McDonald House um, children to go to camp locally in, right near Lake Wall and Pawpax. And so you were told there was a kidney and then what? Um, He said they needed to do a a cross match, which would take uh, about six hours. So he said to, you know, let him eat and let him do go about your business and try not to think about it, which is almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we came home after celebrating with the teachers. We came home and we um, packed a bag, and shockingly, I fell asleep. And I got a phone call at five o'clock in the morning to say, "Get here as soon as you can." 
And so how quickly after that phone call were they doing surgery on Bobby? As soon as we got there, it was like a whirlwind. We were brought directly in. He had to have chest x-rays, cardiograms. Um, they measured him. They measured um, They measured, They were do- taking all kinds of measurements and making sure he was healthy enough to actually go in and have the surgery. So had he had a cold? He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been eligible. That's the first question they ask you when they call you, is, is Bobby healthy enough to receive uh, surgery and transplant? Does he have a cold? Is he vomiting? And thank goodness he wasn't. He was, he was perfectly fine. So had he, a, had, he not been, had he not been well, that kidney would have gone to someone else? Right. You would have to pass on wow. it. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty big stuff. So the surgery, the day of his surgery was what date? June 15th. And that was at, at the Philadelphia Hospital? Yes, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And how did you, you said it was how many hours? Six? Um, it was expected to be six to seven, and he was out in less than six hours. And how did he look in recovery? Oh, he looked like a different child. The coloring in his face was back to a normal color. Um, first thing I looked at was the urine bag on the floor, and it was full of yellow Yellow urine. First time in his life? Yeah. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. He was, he, his kidney was working as soon as they put it in. Now, immediately after that, did the kid, did he sleep through the night? Yes, he had slept through the night for the first time without having to get up. Um, once we were released from the hospital, his energy level changed. He wouldn't even stay in bed. The doctors would ask him to please stay in bed. And, I mean, he was he was just like a different child. His energy had gone through the roof. He's now alert. He can pay attention. He's not so confused anymore. Um, he's just, he's like a different child. We, I mean, he... You're supposed to relax after surgery, and he just had energy to burn. He couldn't wait to do things. Now, what about the other side, though, the anti-rejection medications he has to take? I believe it was 30 a day. Yeah, they started him around 30 pills a day. Um, And so as time goes on, they decrease some of them, depending on his blood level. So for follow-up, you have to go back twice a week for six, weeks we wound up there for seven weeks with a second surgery to have a stent removed um and then they moved to once a week for six uh, an additional six weeks and each time they take blood work to make sure your anti-rejection medicine is at the proper level they need it to be at so that you don't lose this kidney and this is for life he has to take certain medications that will keep his body from rejecting that kidney for the rest of his life Diet, did that change? I'm sorry? The diet, his diet, did that change? Oh, he's, he eats everything now. Everything tastes good. He tries everything. He's asking to eat everything and tr- just try everything, which is a complete change. He was a very picky child, and now he'll eat almost anything. <laughs> I know. When I met him, he was eating a big bowl of ice cream topped yes. with melted marshmallows <laughs> that turned my stomach to look at. <laughs> Now, just, well, that was something he was restricted on beforehand. He was not allowed to have any dairy products. He wasn't allowed to have ice cream for years because of the high phosphorus content in dairy products. So um, once they put the kidney in, it worked so well, it was depleting him of phosphorus. So we were so he was forced, haha, like any kid should be forced, to eat ice cream and <laughs> milkshakes and milkshakes twice a day to improve his phosphorus level. I understand that Bobby's kidney is only a three to six antigen match and that the best would have been six to six. What does this mean for the future? Um, From the way I understand it is the less of a match is usually sometimes they need to increase the dosage on the anti-rejection medication long term um, and they will continue to test it to see how your body is accepting it and just hoping for no rejection for years to come. Okay, we're going to take a station break. You're listening to Talk Shop, NPR Radio, Catskill, WGFF, 90.5 FM.
we've seen throughout history, as far back as Harriet Tubman, but then the civil rights movement, we've seen how change can happen when people get together and walk, and then more specifically when women, when black women get together and walk. On the next Janice Adams show, Girl Trek, Oh, the Power of Walking, Saturday at 4 on WJFF. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Every week on the Wagon Load of Monkeys here on WJFF, I host an hour of folk music from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. On the next Folk Plus... Angela Page brings you Wagon Load of Monkeys Hour. That's at noon on Saturday. Please tune in and see how she does. I'm Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Join me on the next talk shop for Let's Talk Vets, news and information of interest to our veteran and active service communities. This month, we'll talk to John Galena, co-founder of Purple Heart Homes. This North Carolina-based nonprofit specializes in retrofitting existing or building new homes for disabled vets from all wars. That's Let's Talk Vets, September 5th, 7 p.m. on WJFF. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jan Goodwin. Talk Shop this evening is talking about organ transplants, how Americans die every day waiting for one. We're talking to Janine Fortuna, whose only child, Bobby, recently had a kidney transplant, without which he would have died. Janine, do you know anything about Bobby's kidney donor? I don't. Um, It is policy that you are not allowed to... um know anything about the donor or family or contact the family for at least a year so i have no knowledge of whether it was a child or an adult or how the person passed away um so i can i believe eventually find out if their family if the deceased donor's family cares to contact us or we can contact them and so basically, while you're celebrating a renewed life for your son, that family is grieving because they've just lost a relative. Yes, which is difficult. It's difficult to... to I, I've tried to explain it to my son as um, I, because I've heard a few people say uh, so it's unfortunate someone had to die for my son to live, and I, I see it more as um, if that person was going to pass away anyway. Why not save a life in the process? Um, each person can save up to eight lives as a deceased donor. And um, so if it's someone's time to pass on, why not, if you're a donor, save other people's lives? Children, it, it's, it's amazing how young some of the children are that are desperately waiting for organs. And you have seen um, children in your support group die because yes, they haven't they received actually, them? Yes, two the other day. Very two, young children. Two? Two of them, yeah, yesterday. They were, were they waiting for kidneys? Mm-hmm, yes. Complications. One had a complication. I believe it was due to uh, a peritoneal um, tube placement, and um, the other one I'm not sure, but they were all kidney waiting for kidneys. So you think you believe your donor was male, but you don't know the, this person's age? You have no idea? I have no idea. Do you have any idea how long deceased donor kidneys last? Um, yes. The, the reason why your original goal is to get a living donor is because a living donor kidney um, can last on average uh, 15 years. A deceased donor kidney lasts on average, about 10 years. So Bobby's only 12. How many kidneys is he likely to need in a lifetime? Um, I'm hoping this one will last a very long time, but, yes, possibly three. Uh, The doctor actually was telling him that she has seen patients that have five kidneys. 
from three separate transplants at three different times. And you also said, I believe, that you met a man whose kidney has, has is still lasting him for 45 years. Yes, I, asked, I have messaged with people who have held their kidney transplants 40, 45 years, and I'm hoping my son will be on that list. We hope that too. <laughs> but do we know why some of them last that long and others do not? I don't know if they ever understand what causes someone to hold a kidney so long, whether it's diet or lifestyle. Um, I do know they, they, at the beginning of Bobby's transplant, transplant workup, they explain to you when, when a child becomes a teenager is the most dangerous part because they become rebellious and they feel good, so they, will, they possibly will stop taking their medication, which, of course, will result in rejection. Um, but teenagers are teenagers, and, you know, some feel they know better. So they, they consider the teenage years the most dangerous part where you might get a little rebellion for medication and following, you know, rules and how you're supposed to take care of it. It's a gift, and you are supposed to take care of it very carefully. So his body knows that this kidney does not belong to him, and these drugs are supposed to mask that. Yes. So you've had to ask guests not to visit if they have the slightest cold? Yes. I am supposed to be very careful of exposing him to any kind of illnesses because anti-rejection, the way anti-rejection drugs work is they suppress your immune system, so that your body doesn't recognize the kidney as a foreign object within your body. So, and if he catches a cold and his body starts to fight it, it may recognize this kidney that doesn't really belong there, and it could send him into a type of rejection. Um, so I, we have to be very careful at school with flu season, um, stomach viruses that go around, um, any kind of, even a slight cold, um, because he's suppressing his immune system, can turn very dangerous, of course, because your body doesn't have the ability to fight a disease as someone who's not on immune suppression. Now, these are incredibly powerful drugs. Are there side effects yes. from these? Um, yes, there are There are some side effects. There's, he has tremors in his hands from one of them. Um, he has some of the... I don't see so much. He's gaining a lot of weight from he's on prednisone, um, so he is gaining a lot of weight. But um, aside from that, I don't see anything aside from the hand tremors that are that but we noticed. But some children who've had these transplants have ended up with lymphoma or skin cancer? Oh, that's the possibility. Yes, there are. Um, I don't know if it's side effects, but there are the possibility because you're suppressing your immune system. There's something called PTLD which is post-transplant lymphoma, that's a possibility from um, suppressing your immune system so low that in order to not reject the kidney that lymphoma could become a possibility. Um, there are skin, you have to watch him for skin cancers um, because of he's, some of the medications make him extremely sensitive to the sun. So a lot of sunscreen, and they, they will look at his skin yearly to make sure he's not getting any kind of um, strange dots or anything of, to screen him for skin cancer. And I understand that some of these anti-rejection drugs can run as much as $10,000 a month. Have you any idea how much of that you're going to have to pay? I, I don't know yet. I, from, so far, he has been covered. Um, I have to speak to um, Medicare next month because they now cover him for three years. Uh, it's just policy of, I believe, the country is once the child goes through trans transplant. Children, I believe it's children only, then they become covered firstly by Medicare. So you had a deductible, $6,000 deductible on him? Originally when he was first diagnosed, we had, um, we had marketplace insurance. And yes, our original uh, copay was was six thousand dollars deductible, and then we needed to reach a cap of twenty thousand dollars. Now I know that you've just lost your job as a medical transcriptionist. You were replaced by technology. 
and your husband has his own uh, mechanic business, but how will mm-hmm. you guys cope financially? Um, that I don't know. I'm in the process of applying for new work and new jobs, and so thankfully um, we had had a very generous community that fundraised for us, so so far I've been able to use that for his transplant costs, um, but the future is shaky looking for a job at this point. And also, he's 12, and mm-hmm. he'll be 18. Um, he becomes an adult. So at that stage, if he needs another kidney, he would not go to the top of the children's list. What nope. happens? He goes to the bottom of the thousands of people that are waiting. Um, uh, at that point, you can test again for living donors and just keep your fingers crossed that you come across that right person. Um, we share on Facebook Oh, my goodness, every day at least two, three, four, five people who put up T-shirts, write it on their cars, put up billboards. There are people desperate, adults that are desperately looking for a donor match, living donor match. It's just the numbers are just staggering as to how many people are waiting for either kidney or liver because you can be a a living liver donor also. Right. I think the other organs, you have to be a, a deceased donor. Is that the case? Yes. Liver, your liver can regenerate. Um, so you can give um, a quarter of your liver, and they can transplant that into someone else to save their life. We know someone who had it. He's four years strong. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing what they can do. And your liver regenerates. If you give away a quarter of it, it will regenerate, and you will get your whole liver back. It's just, it's incredible. Can you you save someone by donating a quarter of a liver? Yes, yes. We have a friend. We have a friend that we drag race with, and the man, he drag races, he's four years post. He um, he was lucky enough to find a donor via Facebook um, who she only lived four miles away from him, and she saw his post, his wife's post on Facebook, and um, volunteered to get tested, a young girl, and she saved his life. She literally saved his life because he was really, really bad by the time they found her. So to be a deceased donor, we're talking about heart, lung, intestine, eye, mm-hmm. face yes. face now, which is amazing, hands yes, skin, and pancreas. Yes, they can do um, skin grafts, tissue. Um, I, I mean, you can give someone sight by, by donating your corneas. There, is, there are so many things um, that can change one person's life if, if you just sign or check the box on your driver's license. Um, I've, I've read that people, I've, I've even heard people say, oh, nobody would want my body because I'm so sick. And, and they always say, let the doctor decide that. Let the doctor make a decision as to whether your tissue is good enough. Maybe your eyes aren't so great, but... Your heart may be stronger than, you know, the average person's, and you may match a child who's waiting. Um, I've seen some videos of children that got lung transplants, and to see them cry because they can finally take a breath is just amazing as a parent to, to see your child thrive again just from, a kid, just from an, an organ donor, from a generous gift. It is an incredibly it is an incredibly miraculous gift. So, despite the lifelong expenses that Bobby's going to have, is he now cured? He is not cured. This is kidney transplant is only a treatment. Um, eventually, I, I'm hoping he will hold this kidney as long as he can. But kidney transplant does not cure the kidney disease. Um, his kidneys will eventually, his original kidneys, which are still inside him, will eventually probably atrophy and completely fail. And um, But no, this does not cure his disease, and uh, it, it wouldn't cure anyone who has a kidney disease. How often does Bobby now have to go to the Philadelphia Children's Hospital? We go at least once a week. 
once a week. So you once, are still incurring a lot of tra- lot of driving and a lot of travel yes. expenses. Yes, we've started to. Um, I now we get up at four in the morning and drive down um, just to avoid. I've noticed if we if we have an, a Thursday appointment, the hotels are like three hundred dollars. So um, we have been getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and driving down and, and coming back. you said day. you so, actually were considering fundraising to start small efficiency apartments where parents in a similar situation could stay inexpensively? Yes. I had, I had spoken to, I assumed um, everyone who was um, down in that kind of a situation, cancer patients, all were being... Um, allowed to stay at Ronald McDonald House. And from what I've understood from people I've spoken to, that they are very overbooked. Um, Originally, we thought we would be able to stay at the Gift of Life House, and it was just overbooked and overcrowded. Um, So I have uh, thought of looking into fundraising for small efficiency rooms where Families could stay. You can heal better with your family, and driving back and forth is exhausting on top of the stress of just surgery and taking care of your child. I can tell you driving back and forth in traffic is just, (laughs) it's difficult. Um, And on top of that, he was not allowed to be exposed to anyone, so we had to go through a drive-through. We weren't allowed to... Um, we had to be very careful about stopping to go to the bathroom and exposing him to too many people right after surgery. So I have thought about this for quite a while. My Apparently this kidney disease has created a new crusade for me to look into different options to give families to make it easier. It, it's It's unbelievable how far away these hospitals are for I these know. children. Well, I hope you'll be very successful in this project, and let's hope that Bobby's kidney lasts him forever. Janine, I thank you for sharing your story with us, and readers, I thank you for listening. Good night. Thank you. comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, wmh.org. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. Public Radio for Sullivan County, the Catskills, and Northeast Pennsylvania. One minute to eight o'clock here in Jeffersonville, 84 degrees and fair. A heat advisory in effect from now until a few more minutes. Uh, and then possibility of heavy rain tonight, low of 68 overnight. Those scattered showers possibly continuing into tomorrow and then scattered thunderstorms possibly continuing into tomorrow afternoon. High of 80 degrees that day tomorrow night isolated thunderstorms also possible then isolated showers overnight low of 59 friday and saturday those thunderstorms possibly continuing high highs in the 70s and lows in the 60s both days stay tuned right now for me bradman on neonatal pulse here on wjff 90.5 fm Support comes from you and from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, New York, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com.